Stand Up and Bless the Lord. And Colin's going to lead that. I'm going to sing it a cappella. And the tune is um, Carlisle. If you've got a, a psalter and you, you read the tunes, the tune is Carlisle. I stand to sing. Stand up and bless the Lord, you people of his choice. Stand up and bless the Lord your God with heart and soul and voice. Though high above all praise, Above all blessing high, who would not fear his holy name and praise and magnify? Oh, for the living flame from his own altar brought. To touch our lips, our minds inspire, and wing to heaven our thought. God is our strength and song, and his salvation ours. Let us proclaim his love in Christ with all our ransomed powers. Stand up and bless the Lord, the Lord your God adore. Stand up and bless his glorious name, both now and evermore. Now turn uh, with me, please, in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verse uh, 32. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you should find this on page 495. Just before we read uh, a little bit of uh, introduction, uh, you may remember last week uh, we pointed out that chapter 8 forms a transitional chapter in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The wall building is complete Uh, But God's work uh, in the lives of his people uh, has barely begun. Uh, He has yet much to do in building up the the spiritual lives of his uh, people. And in that context, we uh, indicated that there appears in chapter 8 to be something of a a spiritual quickening, a renewal, a revival. Uh, And we saw how the people of God moved from uh, a position of brokenness, having come under the preached Word of God. They moved from brokenness to the experience whereby the joy of the Lord was their strength. And indeed, 
uh, towards the end of chapter 8, when uh, they engage in the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths, uh, they are doing this in a way that is quite unprecedented. They are obeying God with a joy hitherto not experienced for almost a thousand years. Nehemiah tells us they hadn't celebrated the feast in this manner since the days of Joshua. So a, a remarkable work had been done in the lives of these people. Well, since that point in time, they have subsequently celebrated the great day of atonement. And now uh, we break into chapter 9, which really runs into chapter 10 as well. Uh, and I'm purposefully starting at verse 32, though we will deal with the whole of the chapter. Uh, verses 1 to 5, uh, I'm going to suggest as a sort of preparatory service for what's to follow. Uh, and then verses 6 through 31 uh, are uh, a worship prayer, uh, a quite remarkable worship prayer. And then in verse 32, uh, we get down to uh, the petition that the people of God have to make. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today." In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Now, this evening I want you to imagine a film that begins with the closing scene, and the director's cut uh, then inserts the words three weeks earlier, and the events of those three weeks are then unfolded, helping the final scene 
to take on a new depth of meaning. Well, the final scene in the verses that we read together show the people of God eager to make a fresh start. They want to renew their covenant vows, a new beginning. Uh, Some years ago, I was approached by a married couple who wanted to renew their marriage vows. They'd come through an extremely rocky uh, patch. Uh, Both parties had failed in their relationship, and having identified where things had gone wrong, they wanted to make a new beginning. They wanted a fresh start. Well, God's people, having returned from the trauma, and it was a trauma, the trauma of exile, are now petitioning God for a fresh start. They want to renew their covenant vows, if you like. And as I indicated earlier, uh, our passage uh, or our chapter splits into three verses, one to five. I've called that a preparatory service. I hope uh, the reason for doing so will become obvious. And then verses six to 31 is a, a worship prayer which transitions into uh, what is uh, a very serious uh, petition, verses uh, 32 to 38. But let's look at the preparatory service, uh, first of all. Uh, The opening verses of chapter 9 record a remarkable day of preparation, prior to the reaffirmation of covenant vows. Indeed, the previous 24 days are marked by an unprecedented period of biblical exposition. I would love to know exactly what passages uh, were read and uh, dealt with. Uh, We're told certainly at the beginning of uh, chapter 9, verse 3, that they read from the book of the law of the Lord. Now, the law can sometimes refer to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's the law as in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. Sometimes it's even broader than that. The Old Testament Scriptures subsumed under this description of uh, the law. Uh, And I would like to think that it's that broader version that we have in mind here in chapter 9. And uh, I found myself saying, now, if I was a Levite living then, what passage of Scripture would I want to to read to these people? And it didn't take long uh, to think, well, surely Ezekiel 37 uh, might prove uh, a very telling passage uh, to read. Certainly, it was a book recently written by a prophet, Ezekiel, in the exile, uh, a book I'm sure that many of them would have been familiar with. I'm sure you're very familiar with this chapter. It's probably the most familiar of all of Ezekiel. God had transported Ezekiel uh, to a valley of dry bones and asked the question, can these bones live? 
was that a trick question? Uh, Ezekiel's non-committal reply was, Sovereign Lord, you know. (laughs) Don't ask me. You know. Now listen to chapter uh, 37, uh, reading from uh, verse uh, 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared in them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, or to the spirit, the ruach. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken." And I have done it, declares the Lord. How might the people in Ezra's day, Ezra and Nehemiah's day, have responded to such a a scripture reading and exposition? Wouldn't they have said, wait a minute, that's us. We were dead men, spiritually dead. We were without hope. But we no longer retain that dead bone status. God has drawn near to us. He has spoken powerfully through his word. He has breathed his recreative spirit into us. We're not the people we once were. We're different. The whole spiritual landscape of Israel had been radically transformed over these past several weeks. And that transformation is readily observable in uh, chapter 9 in, I would suggest, three ways. 
First of all, we discover in verse 3 that they had an ongoing insatiable appetite for God's Word. They were, if you like, a blotting paper people, soaking up God's Word, building it into the fabric of their lives. Time seemed to stand still as they stood in God's presence and as He revealed Himself through His Word. A quarter of a day, we read, passed by three hours uh, without anyone consulting their mobile sundial. This is a long service. They soaked up the Word. Secondly, they've developed a heightened sensitivity to sin. Sins that they'd formerly been blind to or indifferent to are now, to their great discomfort, being drawn out of the hiding places they were in and exposed by the glaring searchlight of God's Word. Verse 2, sin was a big deal in a way that it had never been a big deal uh, before. You can't spend three hours confessing your sin to God if you don't take sin seriously. And as God's Word highlighted their sin, I'm sure they're making mental notes. Deal with this. Tear that out. Uproot this. It's good, isn't it, that we participate in a communal confession of sin each Sunday morning. But, and it's an important but, but if that is allowed to become a piece of sheer formal ceremony, then we're in very real danger of diluting the sinfulness of sin. Thirdly, notice they are truly humbled before God. For the first time, the street sweeper and the governor share the same wardrobe. Both are dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And this isn't a, a casual Friday desk, uh, dress code in the office. Theirs is an expression of heart abasement before the God whom they've offended. Famous verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land." Pride blinds us to our true spiritual state. For pride, you see, is self-congratulatory rather than self-abasing. It is more concerned with climbing ladders than groveling in the dust. Ladder climbers look down their noses on all they consider to be their spiritual inferiors. Remember the story Jesus told of the, the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee went into the temple to pray. And he said, I want to thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm actually pretty wonderful. 
Uh, you have a record of all the tithes that I've given to you. Uh, I'm rather a splendid person, am I not? Not like this publican here in the corner. And the publican was groveling, beating his breast and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the interesting comment that Jesus makes in regard to that story is this. The Pharisee prayed with himself. Not to God. He prayed with himself. So in these three ways, I think we see something of the way in which this people's heart was being prepared for all that was to follow. And so let's turn now from these preparatory acts to the great prayer made in response to the Levite's directive. I love these words, and I'm glad we sung that uh, last uh, psalm that we sung together. Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, I suppose their Bible teachers were uh, really anticipating uh, McShane's dictum. Remember what he said, turn your Bible into prayer. And they had had intensive hours of Bible teaching for three plus weeks. And now that knowledge of God is being transferred into their prayer. God is rightly the focus of their adoration. Oh, they have, they have a, a great petition to bring, but it's of secondary importance. Worship is of prime importance. If you're a victim of shopping list praying, then take note, petition should always be subservient. Uh, to praise. And the prayer, you'll notice, begins in 5a with the wonder of the Creator and His creation. Uh, I want to suggest that we often fail to give God's creation the emphasis that it deserves. We're in such a rush as evangelical Christians uh, to get to the salvation bit that the marvel of creation often appears as a mere index or appendix, rather, in our thinking about God. Not only was the whole created order intended to reveal God's wisdom, power, and glory, it was designed to give him pleasure. That's why it's there. Now, verse 6 tells us that God breathed the life into his creation, but in a very particular and unique manner. You will remember that God breathed life into man, man made in his own image, the, the very crown of his creation, uh, the masterpiece, if you like, in which God took his greatest delight, not least because man reflected God's glory. 
Is it too daring? Would you think it blasphemous of me to suggest that man was God's self-portrait? Man made in the image of God. And, and the rest of creation served as the gallery in which God's self-portrait hung. Now, you'll notice, in verse 7, we move from creation to God's call of Abraham. Uh, we're jumping from Genesis 2 to Genesis 12, uh, or maybe Genesis 11. Genesis 12 is uh, God's second call, really, to Abraham. But in order to grasp the significance of the rest of this prayer, which processes Israel's historical development, we need to fill in this gap. Um, a catastrophe, a cataclysm of great note had taken place. Man sinned, and in an instant, God's good creation was horribly vandalized. God's self-portrait was grotesquely defaced. And not just his self-portrait, but the whole gallery of creation was damaged beyond recognition. Hence, in, Paul, in Romans 8, Paul speaks of the whole creation groaning. Creation badly scarred by human sin is expressing its frustration, its longing for restoration. Now, what's God's response to that catastrophe? Well, there was no panic in heaven. God planned to bring a master picture restorer into the world, and he would come through Abraham's line. And the nation Israel, of which he would be father, were to figure prominently in the great drama of redemption. Israel was chosen for a purpose and designed for a mission. They were, if you like, set on a trajectory that was designed to showcase God's glory. They were to demonstrate the benefits of living under God's rule and impress upon the surrounding nations the wonder of God's salvation. But instead of following that trajectory, they herpled through history. Promising takeoffs were followed by ignominious crash landings. And this prayer walks us through Israel's response to God's gracious provision. And as we follow these verses, we will notice that there is a very clear pattern developing. When God delivered them from their Egyptian bondage, how did they react? Verse 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. A piece of industrial art, a molten calf, was given the credit for their deliverance. And after God had led them into the promised land, driving out their enemies, what was the response? Verse 26, 
but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who admonished them in order to turn them back to you. And when in the period of Judges, God repeatedly chastened them before delivering them, had they learned their lesson? No. Verse 29, you warned them to return to your law but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them stubbornly. They turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. And then after the establishment of the monarchy, the nation soon lapsed into grievous idolatry, resulting in the very sore exile from which they had just recently returned. You see the pattern? It's one takeoff and crash landing followed by another and another and another. Now, reading verses such as these, we might be tempted to remonstrate with Israel and ask, how could they possibly abuse God's grace in this way? See, see how patient and kind God to, was towards them, and yet they abuse his grace. They are an ungrateful people. How could they do that? Well, it's very easy, is it not, to read biblical history in a detached manner when, in fact, the seeds of that ingratitude and rebellion reside in our own hearts. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul warns them against the dismissive attitude towards biblical history. When Corinthians 10 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, Paul is saying, now listen, we need to learn the lessons of history. Now that said, it would be quite wrong to allow Israel's failure to obscure God's purpose, which was to reveal his character through the historical process, not by dropping down a book of systematic theology from heaven in order that that might be read in some kind of spiritual vacuum. Rather, it is through the historical relationship with Israel that he pulls back the curtains and says, look, this is what I am like. How do we know what God the Redeemer really means? Well, see how he delivered his people out of Egypt and its bondage. How do we know what it means for God to be his people's guide? Well, see how he led Israel in the wilderness and gave direction to their lives. What does God the provider mean? Well, we read here that he provided his people with manna, water, quails, and eventually a land flowing with milk and honey. What does God's rule mean? See how he legislates at Mount Sinai. See how he legislates for Israel's welfare and seeks to order society for their good. 
Now, the list goes on and on and on, but there is a particular focus to which this historical walkthrough takes us. What does it mean to say that God is patient, God is gracious, God is faithful, God is merciful, God is forgiving and loving? Look at verse 17b. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Then, in verses 30 and 31, for many years you were patient with them, but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them. Indeed, it can be legitimately argued that our understanding of some aspects of God's character would be greatly impoverished if not viewed against the background of Israel's stubborn, stiff-necked response to his grace. It's that, you see, that produces the wow factor in this prayer. Wow! See how God responds to the rebellion and ingratitude of his people. You could put it this way, God's grace out-trumps Israel's perversion. And this is made very clear by the little word but in our text. First, we have the buts of ingratitude and rebellion which characterize Israel's response to God. Verse 16, 26, 28, and 29. But Israel, but Israel, but Israel. This is how they responded to God. However, these are outtrumped by the buts of God's grace found in verse 7 and in verse 31. God's grace flooded their sin and failure. What does Paul teach? Where, uh, where sin abounds. Grace does much more abound. God's grace and love for this people is something that, that human sin can never exhaust. Isn't that incredible? Uh, think of the way in which uh, the Apostle Paul, in both his epistle to the Romans and to the Ephesians, makes use of these two little words, but God. Things, things were bad for men and women, be it religious man or irreligious man, uh, or even uh, the Israelites themselves. Things were bad, hopeless but God. And again, writing to the Ephesians, this, this is what your life used to be like. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, without hope, without God in the world. But God responds. Now, it's so important uh, to recognize that uh, Human sin cannot exhaust God's grace. God never comes to the point where he says, 
Sorry, I've kind of run out of mercy. I've, I've run out of forgiveness. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm at my limit. The cupboard's bare. God will never say that. I wonder if your life this evening perhaps tracks something of the spiritual roller coaster of Israel. I wonder if you're able to, to plot both the highs and lows the grace and the mercy of God, our own rebellion and ingratitude. I wonder if there's someone here this evening who may well be thinking, you know, in my Christian life, I've really blown it. This time I have blown it. There is, there is no way back. There is, there is no way forward for me in the Christian life. I have blown it. My sin is greater than God's ability to forgive. Don't be drawn into that mindset. Alexander White, famous Edinburgh minister in the 19th century, uh, met a Christian lawyer who was in great distress of soul. And at the, at the termination of the legal business that was being conducted, he asked White if he had a word for him from God. Do you have a word from God? And, and, and White was sort of taken aback. You know, weren't expecting that. Wait a minute, this isn't, a, this isn't my vestry hour. I'm conducting a, a legal transaction here. But he, he wrote four words in a slip of paper and handed that to the lawyer. And a few days later, they met up again, and it was clearly apparent that the lawyer's burden had been lifted. And he mentioned to White the helpfulness of the note, which quoted Micah 7 and 18, God delights in mercy. That's what he needed to hear. God delights in mercy. And that's what Israel needed to remind themselves of at this juncture. They've seen the roller coaster. They were on the roller coaster. What's the way forward for them? Well, you need to start by recognizing that God delights in mercy. And the implied petition uh, running through from verses 32 to the end of the chapter, and we don't get to the, the petition itself until the last verse. The, the petition is built on the roller coaster performance through history. They're mindful of the fact that the hardship caused by their exile is a just response of God's faithfulness towards them. That's the point that's made in verse uh, 33. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. So that being a vassal state of Persia, responsible for paying uh, tax to the central funds, clearly contributed to the great distress that they mention in verse 37. So what is it they want? What is, what is their petition that they're making to God in the light of all of that? Oh, was it independence? No. 
Was it a, was it a big tax rebate? You know, make life easier. No, it wasn't that. Was it the respect of the surrounding nations? And uh, goodness, uh, they, they must have felt great need of that, these people that constantly ridiculed them. But no, that's not what they ask for. They want to preserve the joy of the Lord which they've known for the past 24 days. They want to break free from their historical spiritual roller coaster to put down a marker, if you like, which says, on that day we return to God. We renewed our vows. We promised obedience to Him. They want covenant renewal. They're looking for the, the grace of a new beginning. Now, there are some congregations that follow this pattern, uh, and members are asked to sign covenant agreements or to stand up in their places and to affirm, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. We develop a format there is a place for us as individuals and as a congregation of God's people to distance ourselves from roller coaster living that's characterized by, by long periods of ingratitude and rebellion and say, as we'll sing shortly, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord to thee. Although we're going to sing a modern version where the words are just a wee bitty different, but there we are. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And we're going to do that more readily when we grasp that conviction of sin in our lives is engineered by God not to shame and ridicule us, but to produce repentance that enables us to disassociate ourselves from all that would hinder spiritual growth and fruitfulness of service. And we find greater impetus to do so against the backdrop of God's loving commitment towards us. What does he say through the prophet Hosea to Israel? How can I give you up? How, how can I let you go? I can't. You're, you're mine. Uh, I have joined myself to you. And I'm determined to work in you to produce all that is necessary to bring you to myself. Many people view religion as something that delivers only enjoyment and comfort, something that consoles them when they are in trouble. They see it as something which does things for us, to us, and in us without our doing anything at all in return. Something which gives all and demands nothing 
in return. Well, God does make demands of his people. They're not unreasonable demands. One of the words we read in Scripture, God says, My son, give me your heart. Give me your heart. And when we give God our heart, we're in effect saying, All that I am and have belongs to you. What more adequate response is there to a God who has proved himself so faithful, so patient, so forgiving, so merciful towards us as we have traveled up and down that roller coaster in our spiritual lives? My son, give me your heart. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we bow ourselves in your presence, we do acknowledge uh, the roller coaster experience that so many uh, can identify with. We acknowledge that often we have been uh, ungrateful for the richness of provision that has come our way. So often we have demonstrated. Uh, a rebellion of spirit. We want to learn uh, the lessons of history, uh, the lessons that we find uh, throughout the pages of your dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, but also the lessons of history that we learn from our own lives where we can so often come back again and again and again to the same place where we realize that we've blown it. But we thank you this evening that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound and you can take us in all our failure and brokenness and breathe afresh into us the grace of a new beginning. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.